Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who take big pieces of wood and make them smaller Mark, Matt, and Shannon. Hey now, it's Wood Talk number 181 for May 5th, 2014. On today's show, we're talking about HVLP, finishing in a messy garage, drying lumber, uh, when uh, when to use green wood versus kiln-dried wood, getting all confused. And uh, that's really about it. And this is one of those recordings, sometimes I have the template where the music just keeps going <laughs> and I forget to turn it down. <laughs> Note to self, go back to this template and lower the music earlier so I don't have to keep competing with it. Uh, but Where's the mariachi music? Right here, baby, right here. All right. All right. Um, I like the chalupa with a number three <laughs> and guacamole. We have the best Mexican restaurant right around the corner. It is so good. But anyway. I'll bet. I guess that's it where is. You're I, I miss good show. Mexican food. When I lived out west, the Mexican food was much better than oh, yeah. Maryland for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> that's strange, isn't it? Uh, now, around here, I've got about three or four good places that are just like a stone's throw away. We Very have some lucky. good ones too, but they keep getting shut down by the health department. So, <laughs> nice. Oh, that's a good Mexican restaurant. <laughs> that's a really good one. When it's got a big D on the wall from the health department, you know it's good. <laughs> that's right. That's just extra flavor. Uh, all that and more. All that other stuff I mentioned before, screwing everything up. Coming up, but uh, first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Festool. Some tools stand apart the most when they're working all together. Explore a full system designed to deliver more precise results at FestoolUSA.com. All right. (laughs) That's going to be hard not to keep doing. <laughs> and next, bringing up the rear of the show. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get started. Uh, I think there's probably some stuff to talk about. I had a little bit going on in the shop. 
Uh, well, actually, it's still a little bit calm considering the project's just beginning, but I've got all my lumber together for the Moorish chair and I'm doing the, the portion of the video where I, I explain in great depth how you go through and pick your lumber and all that good stuff. Um, what What's funny with a chair like this, a project like this, there's so many varied parts to it that you look at the cut list and you, you can kind of go cross-eyed if you're just in that planning phase. And it got me to thinking, I wonder how many people actually do plan out strategically part for part to make sure they're getting exactly what they need. Um, I know for me, I kind of will look at the biggest, like the lowest hanging fruit, the, the bigger pieces, the ones that dictate that I need a certain width board. I focus on those. Once those are satisfied, then I just kind of go and a couple more of these and, and hope that I have enough. And do you, do you guys, how much do you plan out your purchases? Uh, about what you just said i, I yeah. focus on thickness more than anything else uh-huh yeah um you know for legs it's got to be such and such a thickness but even then it's ah, i'll just grab a couple of those six inch boards you know i mean right. I, I can't i know that i can maybe get it out of one board but i'll throw another board on top of it but sure yeah sure. it's 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 a bigger picture thing because i figure if i end up with extra lumber i'll just put it on the rack and use it another time well and I, go. I like to when I'm teaching it, I like to almost, I feel like I should be saying something much more elegant than just like, well, I just kind of pick, you know, pick up a bunch of boards. And bottom line is if I have to go back to the lumber yard to get more, it's not like that's a bad thing. <laughs> you know, right. Like, yeah. I have to pay for the gas, but I don't mind going back and uh, uh, buying some more stock. But it's well, a, I look at it this way. Every time I have done a detailed plan, it goes out the window the minute you get to the lumber yard. Yeah. You know, for one reason or another, maybe, you know, it's not the, the stack is a complete mess or they're closing soon. You feel rushed or the lumber dude's kind of hanging over your shoulder, making you nervous. <laughs> yeah. um, and it just never. So you end up going, okay, I'm going to get out of the way. Let me grab this board, this board, this board and run, you know? And it just, so I just gave up planning it. And I just, I always say I have plan A and plan B, yeah. you know, plan A is like that perfect world. I get that 20 inch wide board and I can do the tabletop with one piece. Plan B is when I don't find that 20 inch wide board, you know, and, and plan B usually is what happens. That's plan B is typically reality. <laughs> plan B is reality. Plan yeah. A is, wouldn't that be cool? So. Yeah. Well, the, the one time I did plan things out really, really like detailed to the last board, I was planning on eight foot boards. And of course I get there and they're 10 foot boards. Oh, which okay. I mean, that's no big deal. It's just a little bit extra. But if you really did plan it out an extra two, like two feet onto a board, it just screws everything up. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, but again, I don't mind overbuying, you know, because it's just extra material that I could use on the next project. So, right. Well, I always tried to go with that, like what, 20% extra. Then it suddenly became 25, 30, 35. So then I felt like a, a an auctioneer because I just kept going up further, <laughs> right. further, further. So bring yeah, them on. I just eyeball it. Cool. Mm -hmm. You get the lumber guy going, come on, you can fit more in the back of that car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, no, just one more board. <laughs> I thought you said these were eight footers. I only brought the minivan. <laughs> nice. All right, Shannon, what about you? Uh, I am, well, first of all, there was a um, SAPFA meeting. The Chesapeake chapter of the SAPFA meeting was this week, which was cool because I missed the last two for um, Stepping Stone Museum stuff. And this weekend was opening day of the Stepping Stone Museum and I didn't go. Mm, bad <laughs> I boy. was like, that's it. I've missed too many of these meetings. I'm gone. And it was cool because uh, Christopher Shores was our guest speaker and he talked about campaign furniture. And, you know, that I think I've mentioned before, I've always been kind of a history buff to begin with. And it was just, it was really cool because there was a lot of talk about, you know, the the style and the form and why it came into being. And it's it's really kind of a, a global style. And I think Chris said at one point the British empire like owned 
like 80% of the landmass on the globe. Mm. The empire was so big. So it's, it's this really, really global style with all these uh, influences from all over the world. And it was, it was really cool to, uh, to see him again and to hear him talk about campaign furniture. And I got a copy of the book and I'm reading it right now. And it's, it's quite nice. Other than that, regarding my, uh, my shop, I am, um, doing some SketchUp stuff for semester six. I've got a whole bedroom suite that I need to get into model form. And, uh, I actually <laughs> forgot to put, you remember that, that, um, oil and wax finish I was talking about a couple episodes or last episode ago. Mm-hmm. I kind of forgot about it for a few days. <laughs> I was so busy doing other things that, you know, my whole put the coat on, wait 24 hours, put another coat, wait 24 hours, that just fell apart around coat three. <laughs> and I suddenly realized, oh man, I've got like two to three more coats to put on it. So I finished that up. It looks good. But I'm wondering, where do you guys put your furniture to cure? Because I, I, it's too early to actually set anything on it. Yeah. But it's also kind of off gassing a little bit. I was just so going like to say, put it in a closed room and my wife's like, ew, that stinks. Move that. Yeah. But I don't want to leave it in the shop because I want to get back to work <laughs> and I don't want to like, well, first of all, I'll bump into it. I don't think dust is going to really stick on the surface at this point, but I also want to, you know, buff it one more time when the wax gets fully hardened. So I, I don't know what to do with it because no matter where I put it in the house, I don't have an extra room that nobody goes into in my house. So where do you guys put it? Do you have a covered area in your backyard or anything? No, I don't. Mm, I can put so it in a garden uh, shed, I suppose. Like someplace outdoor this time of year, I can't imagine it's too warm yet or, or still too cold. So maybe yeah, outside the, if you have a chance to put it out there, but that might work. Now uh, what I see, that's the only thing I worry about. If I put it in the garden shed where the lawnmower is, is it going to smell like gasoline? That's going to smell even worse. worse. Yeah. <laughs> that might be worse. Now, honestly, for me, I mean, I'm in a f- very fortunate space situation, so I just put mine on the other side of the shop. Um, but yeah, when those oil finishes are off-gassing, oh, they can stink up a room in, in a hurry. Seriously fast. Yeah. Like, I put it in our guest room, which was just stupid. I don't know what I was thinking. You don't, right want, you don't want guests. It's right bedroom. <laughs> and it, yeah, it was uh, – I had to open all the windows, put on some fans, air things out, mm-hmm. get yelled at by the wife. Yeah, it was fun. Lovely. Yeah, usually mine just, and I'll talk about this in a little bit with a question we have coming up, but mine usually just kind of sits out in the garage and it's like one of those, well, you can park your car in here if you want to. No, it's going to stink. Well, fine, I'm parking mine in here. That damn limb's going to come down again. It's going to take out your car. <laughs> I wonder if most people, just an average production rate for the for the average hobbyist shop, uh, by the time they're at the end of one project, maybe there's a lull between projects, and that's when they're doing this process. So that you right. know, so you well, don't have to worry yeah. about taking up space in the shop. You're you're working on the next thing right away, uh, so yeah. it's a little bit harder. Well, for you. that's one of the reasons I kind of I actually decided <clears throat> I've got four projects in semester six, and normally I'll tackle them one at a time. But I'm actually making all the SketchUp models at once, and I think I might actually produce the first video. You know that that kind of what you were just saying, Mark, the choose the stock, go over the model. Mm-hmm. I think I might produce all of those at once Nice, and kind of give them to everybody up front. It's kind of a different approach, but I think it actually will help me stay organized. So they, yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing, but I, I do have a few little things that I need to get done out there. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, right. no, um, I think you're right though, Mark, that, that if I remember right back in the old days when I didn't have a show and I just Woodwork for the fun of it. <laughs> when you wanted to? <laughs> yeah. Uh, oftentimes there was kind of like that lull in between. And that was quite often, that's when I would usually be going out getting my next lumber or talking about what the next project was going to be. So I did have a little bit more wiggle room than say, uh, especially either one of you have right now, or especially you, Shannon, with the, the limited space you have in there. Apparently this is a time to maybe start, you know, taking over a neighbor's 
garage if necessary, <laughs> having a backup Great. studio. <laughs> there you yeah, go. That's a good idea. Nice. What about you, Matt? Well, for me, the biggest thing this weekend is I went to what is, have you ever guys heard of like pop-up events? Like re- and, I've heard of restaurants. The books. I've heard it in reference to restaurants, but not this, what you're talking about. Okay. Well, yeah. What, pastries, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, like pop-up tarts and pastries and stuff like that. <laughs> but it's, there, there's like this big thing going on. It's not only with restaurants, but actually Samantha's getting involved in something that's going to be kind of exciting coming up this summer called a, a pop-up wedding. And again, just like these events, it's a, a one-off thing. Suddenly it's just like announced usually by social media and you try and get as many people there, get them as interested as possible and kind of spread the word. And what ended up happening was this weekend we had some friends who are experimenting with this whole pop-up stuff and there is a it's kind of a new version of a really old company and the uh, 20-something uh, family member right now who's kind of getting things revitalized does, did this whole pop-up event where he was introducing this kind of line of industrial slash home furniture and his whole goal is he's, he has a truck, a big old truck that he's going to be driving around with all the stuff in there and going to various shows and markets Preferably all over the country. In fact, when I talked with him, his big goal is to be at a point where he's going to be, say, in your neck of the woods, Mark, or maybe mm. even in Southern California, a little bit further west of you mm-hmm. in the winter so that he can you know, take advantage of it and call it a business adventure. Nice. And so the nice thing was we took over a uh, – it was, it was an auto repair so, uh, store or shop, took over their entire parking lot and set up a, a makeshift – uh, storefront for him. And people came by, they had a band, they had all this other stuff. And it was an opportunity for, for people to see his furniture, talk with him, get to know him and find out what is going on with the store and will it be, where they will be able to find him later on. And, you know, I, I don't know if this is going to be a one-off thing, but it sounds like one of those opportunities to maybe do this further down the road with uh, uh, other artists and everything. So it was, nice. it was a lot of fun and there's some neat stuff that came out of it. Very cool. So I guess we should stay tuned for uh, Matt's pop-up taco stand. Uh, definitely. <laughs> uh, that was the only reason I said because that. Because I can't guarantee the burrow that will be there at the beginning will be there at the end. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wonderful. All right, let's jump into what's new. I got some links here to share with you guys. Uh, first one here is from... Oh, who sent this in? I don't have a uh, source for that, but it's from the New York Daily News. Basically, it's a guy who really likes his Volkswagen Beetle. And decided to give it uh, decided to give it a wooden makeover, and it's kind of it's one of those mind boggling things that that some people just dedicate themselves to, and you just can't even wrap your brain around the amount of work that it must have taken to wrap this thing like that. Pretty crazy. Well, it's obviously not a powder post beetle. <laughs> Very funny, <laughs> uh, but it's it's really awesome. So we'll have the link in there for you to check that out. But just one of those uh, things that uh, humans can do some amazing stuff. That's for sure. Yep, absolutely. Hey, speaking of amazing things, I don't know if this is amazing, just pretty darn cool on a, on a micro level. Johnson in a link, and he says, while browsing around on YouTube, I found a video that contained a miniature handmade lathe. I'm not sure how it would compare with Shannon's, but it is very functional. And I was amazed to see how well it worked after watching how it was built. So this is about a 30-minute video, I believe it is. And um, he has a, a nice accent, at least it's an accent to me. Probably if you're familiar with the guy, it might not be an accent. It just <laughs> sounds like the guy next door. Uh, but he does. He goes through and, and builds this little miniature lathe and makes miniature turnings on it. And kind of a neat thing. I, I did a quick fast-forward through it because miniatures aren't my thing. But if you just like seeing homemade tools doing really kind of neat things... This is the one for you. There you go. Very cool. Well, 
this comes from Stump, which is just fun to say. <laughs> um, and this uh, website will basically rank high on the um, Homeland Security watch list because it's a, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a company that makes incredibly realistic replicas of firearms out of wood. Um, and it's a 1911 pistol made completely out of wood. While it won't fire a cartridge, everything operates just like the real pistol. Slider tracks, hammer cock, you- trigger releases the hammer. And when you when you go to the homepage, you see this uh, cherry um, cherry replica. But he's also got ones made out of ebony with African mahogany handles, and it looks like a real pistol. Hmm. So you know this could be like. You know, great website for terrorists to figure out how to smuggle weaponry through that uh, metal detector. Just figure out how to get it to fire, and and you're good to go. So, nice. thanks, Stump. Thanks for putting our podcast on the NSA watch list. Woohoo! We're going to be going high in the rankings. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Prepare uh, for your body cavity shirts uh, searches, gentlemen. Ew! All right, we got one here from John. Uh, this one is uh, from Texas. Country Reporter, it's just a YouTube video, but really, really high quality uh, production on a woodworker who is making drums. And I guess the name of the brand is uh, Brass Ball Drums. And the shape of the drums are really, really unique. And as a drummer, I look at it and wonder, you know, I want to hear them in person. I mean, you can't you can't really uh, judge their quality on a YouTube video, um, but they look absolutely stunning. But they have this sort of uh, almost hourglassy type shape uh, as mm. they go in and then uh, flare back out. So really unique shape, but it's great to see just an independent shop doing their thing. And I guess someone had hired this guy is a cabinet maker and just a incredible craftsman, but someone hired him to make a drum kit. And this was uh, what he decided to make. So I didn't, I didn't get a chance to watch the whole thing from start to finish, but it looked really, really good. You're going to want to check it out. Um, and I wonder if, you know, if this guy gets really popular, if you would say that like it would be a, uh, um, a really prestigious thing to say that you've got a set of brass balls. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I say, you couldn't just like skate over that. I could it not. It had to be something. I would have been disappointed. <laughs> Brass ball and drums. Sounds great to me. All right, let's move into our poll of the week from our buddy Tom Iovino at tomsworkbench.com. And Tom asked the question, how long do you leave your work in the clamps? Uh, that is assuming there's glue on that work. And I would imagine this is highly variable depending on your temperature, humidity, you know, the environmental conditions I think play a significant role in this. And for me, everything is so darn dry here. Uh, about 30 to 40 minutes is about all I truly need. Although I typically do let it sit in a little bit longer for good measure. Uh, so we had about two, uh, this was posted uh, late today, but uh, 243 votes so far. Uh, most people are saying they leave it overnight, which is probably not a bad thing. Uh, it's about 45% of people say overnight, 28 say just a few hours, 19% say 30 to 60 minutes. And uh, let's see, very few. One one person says less than thirty minutes. <laughs> that sounds uh, that sounds risky. It's always somebody. just south of you. Yeah, right. Somebody leave a little bit warmer, a little bit drier. <laughs> All right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I missed my cue. Never mind. Oh. All right. Uh, let's move into our kickback. We got the first one here is from our buddy Tom Buell. And this is in response to the poll that we mentioned last week with how do you measure the height of your, your bits and blades. He says, I would and did purchase the Veritas setup blocks. Love them for setting router bit and table saw blade heights. I find using a combo square is a balancing act, which uh, distracts me from the objective. Then you use your fingers rather than squinting eyeballs. They're very cool to check the depth of rabbits, grooves, dados on a test piece. 
Put the block in the notch and the fingers tell you that you nailed it. Rulers work just as well, but again, adds the distraction element, vision issues, scary numbers, or the did the combo blade just slip, nagging fear. I've seen people use them for plunge router depth setup, uh, place it between the plunger and the stop. I use this. I also use the setup blocks for checking progress on the drum sander and the planer. A setup block is faster than calipers or rulers to follow the progress when closing in on a desired thickness. And once again, I prefer to use my fingers over my vision for accuracy. Cool. Very Thanks, nice. Tom. Sweet. Well, hey, we have another one from Gerald, and Gerald says, My neighbor's a retired lumberjack. I've watched him split logs many times, and it is something to behold. He typically uses a double-bit blade, and to the naked eye, it looks like he's smacking the log with the flat side of the axe and not the actual sharpened edge, which is something that you would probably see me doing if I was to be splitting any logs. <laughs> Matt, you're doing it wrong. Oh, I don't know why it keeps bouncing back up in my face. Oh. Uh, anyways, I assume that a slow-motion freeze frame would show a last split-second rotation, but what the eye sees is the flat side bouncing off the log and the log splitting almost exploding in two it's really cool i don't know if this is an old school technique used by all the old timers but it appears to have the same effect as the axe that we mentioned last week i'm not saying that word (laughs) because i know i would probably end up swearing in danish and then would be getting huge (laughs) fda some sort of fine or something that is a tricky one starts with a v how about that yeah (laughs) what how dare you how dare you (laughs) Swedish. No, I want meatballs. I think of the Swedish chef from Meatball Tacos. That'd be good. All right. We got a kickback from Mike. He said, I came across a unique unique solution for Dave's question from the last episode about an adjustable workbench. It comes from a video series on YouTube from Luthier Yuha Ruakangas. Yeah, I didn't get that one right either. The God series follows the prototyping of a new guitar model starting from design through two complete guitars. In episode 13, you get a quick glimpse around the five-minute mark of a workbench that appears to be made using the base of a barber's chair as a lift mechanism. <laughs> a few quick pumps of the foot level and the bench is at chest height for up-close detail work. Looks like a pretty interesting approach if you can get your hands on a barber's chair. Well, just go to the barber. Tell him, you know, get that broom out of the back and then quickly run. just say you're going out of business anyway just give me the chairs yeah, <laughs> yeah right yeah what the phobia is taking over <laughs> that's right <laughs> what's interesting about this video is well first of all it's really cool craftsmanship throughout the video but wouldn't you think that a, a guitar maker would use a guitar background track instead of like a jazz saxophone track no um it might have been the seems- only one that came with the software <laughs> yeah, that's true it just, anymore it just seems like a wasted opportunity there it's just like really jazzy brass backup and there's a guy like you know installing the frets on the on the neck of it it's just <laughs> i wonder if, i wonder when you pump up your workbench if you should start asking it really annoying questions and telling it about your family and your kids <laughs> and uh like like happens to me every time i go to great clips so you said you want just a little bit off the top, or are we going to do the whole thing? Yeah, your your uh, your account says a number two on the sides. Uh, is it? I don't know. You're the person. What's the difference between a number two and a number three? I don't know. Anyway, uh, always start with the lower one and work your way up. <laughs> All right. Well, we got another. So, you know, I have to I have to tell you one more. Thing. The uh, going back to the the lumberjack thing. I had a friend I showed that video to this weekend. Mm-hmm. He completely missed that they were using a, uh, a special axe, and he was so amazed by that tire trick so once i pointed out that the video is actually about a new fangle axe he's like no no i don't need that but i need to get me a tire. oh yeah where we put the log inside the tire so the yes pieces, yeah that Hold was pretty together. cool very slick yes good deal all right uh we got one more kickback here from nathan and this one is a voicemail kickback 
Hey guys, this is Nathan. Uh, I've been enjoying your podcast lately, uh, but I had a little bit of kickback for you. I was listening to this last episode where somebody was asking about using travertine as a work surface. I'm working as a cabinet maker and I worked in uh, granite countertops for eight years. So I've got experience in both areas and travertine would be the worst possible solution for any surface of any kind. It's very, very porous. It's actually not granite. It's limestone. So you'd never want to sharpen on top of it because there'd be dips and divots and not nearly as flat as you think. The other problem is it, with it is uh, it cracks and breaks very easily. So any kind of pounding on it would definitely break it. So just a little uh, insight. Very cool. So I think when we started talking about it, we went very far down the granite path and didn't pay attention to the fact that he said travertine. He um, said travertine? Yeah, he did. I was wondering did. where this came from. Yep, in the voicemail, he did say travertine, and we just kind of went down the assumption of granite instead of travertine. So, that, That's upsetting. Little known fact, I was the American Mineralogist of the Year when I was a sophomore in college. Oh, I won really? an award for, for mineralogy. That's very I should exciting. should have caught that. Yeah, it was exciting. I still have a little piece of paper. It's in a frame and everything. <laughs> nice. Well, congratulations. <laughs> uh, let's move on to our voicemail. Got a question about saw restoration. Hey, guys, this is Jim from Riverside, California. Hey, I'm calling with a question about restoring a couple of saws. I've got two distance uh, panel saws that date back to, uh, I think, probably somewhere around the 1950s or 60s. They belong to my father. It's about all I've got left from him. Uh, they're kind of rusty and dull. I'd like to restore them, and I was wondering if you could recommend somebody who could do a decent job on them but wouldn't break the bank. I mean, they don't need to be golden perfect, but I sure would like to get them back to the point where I can say, hey, look, here's a couple of saws that belong to my father. Aren't they cool? Anyway, uh, appreciate any help you can give me. Thanks a lot, and uh, keep up the good work. Love the show. Bye. All right, that's all you guys. I've got no suggestions here. <laughs> well, my previous suggestion was uh, Bob Rosieski, but Bob has uh, recently, as we're recording this, uh, announced that he is going to be stepping back quite a bit. So I don't even know where I'm sending mine. So is, Shannon, is he walking away from the saw sharpening? I thought he was still I, doing that. I thought he was going to at least maybe start wrapping it up a little bit, like maybe only taking a few select clients. I don't. Well, that, that was my impression. I thought I read that someplace. Not maybe like from I'm. The, Bob, if you're listening to this, and I know you are, you need to uh, give us a little kickback. Yeah. So wait, 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 wait. wait. The, what, what, he's back, backing away from what, though? Is he? Oh, the podcast. The, oh, he, podcast. He, yeah. Why he am I just up, hearing about this now? Well, because you don't pay attention to social media like the rest of us. <laughs> what the Mark? hell, guys? I'm so focused on uh, dealing with YouTube trolls. Um, <laughs> yeah. that I for, no, it I was actually, what, in the past two weeks, he, he had put, put up a post. So in case anybody else, this is news to you also. Uh, Bob, is uh, he's backing down from the podcast he's going to be shutting it down and kind of concentrating on other things so he's hitting the road with his pop-up taco stand <laughs> there you go yeah the neat thing is that he's what he's holding on to the all this stuff is going to be up for at least a month so at this point it's probably about another two weeks or so if you're listening to this audio as it's first coming out so if you do not have his videos now is the time to get them uh before they disappear so he's, he's even taking everything down huh that's how i read it I, I, I have the post here. I'll put the link in the show notes. If anybody, yeah. uh, you know, is a fan of the Logan cabinet shop, you'll be very interested in this. Um, but dang, that's kind of a shame. Yeah, it is. I mean, Bob is a ton of great information. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. Uh, all, blame, the, all the power blame to blame you, Blip, Bob. Frankly, 
Oh, you yeah, think so? I think when Blip TV killed the iTunes thing, you know, some well, people we all trouble. got an email from Bob saying, "What? What are you guys doing?" Yeah, yeah. And you could just kind of read between the lines that he was just like, "I don't want to deal with this crap." Well, it's that extra <laughs> bit of work that you know, uh, unless you're really, you really, really want to do it, I could see why someone would just be like, "Ah, it's not worth it." Yeah. Well, hopefully, we'll continue to see a lot of Bob in um, Popular Woodworking Magazine. Sure. Absolutely. Well, good luck to you, Bob. Sorry, uh, I didn't know about this earlier. Um, all right. Well, let's move into well, anyway. Our we've uh, well, hold on. We haven't. We just hijacked Jim's question. Oh shoot! I was ready to go right past. We're giving Bob a send off. And, oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could have sent it to Bob, but not anymore. And well, let's do this. We're done. Get your saw into Bob if you're interested. If one of the other options that Shannon is about to tell you about oh, uh, doesn't was... uh, float your boat, dude. That's classic podcast answering of questions. Like you <laughs> actually, you actually answer. don't answer the question. Fantastic, Jim. The one thing I'm going to tell you is. You probably are going to have a hard time finding anybody who's going to like do all the rust removal and all that stuff. Many of the guys who do this are saw sharpeners, not saw restorers, because it's just it's it's manual labor that anybody can do. So I would probably recommend you do the rust removal yourself. And that can be as simple as, you know, pick a rust remover, a little bit of scotch brite or steel wool and some elbow grease to remove the, you know, take the handle off, get all that crap off. And um, Mark Carroll at Bad Axe Toolworks is still doing saw restoration. Hmm. Um, it's it's because uh, he's got a staff now. It's not just him. He stopped doing it for a while when it was just him and he had to focus on Bad hmm. Axe, but he's got guys that will do that for him now. And if for some reason he can't help you, I know he's got a list of go-to guys. Um, Matt Cianci from the Saw Blog is one of them or the Saw Right is his website now, I think. Um C-I-A-N-C-I is his last name, Cianci. He's up in the Northeast somewhere. Those would be the first two that come to mind. But, you know, you could also check with Bob and see if he is still doing it. Those are the three big ones. There are other folks who sell used saws on eBay. If you look on eBay for, like, restored distant, um, you can find, like, fully restored saws, and you can contact those guys, and they will help you out, too. There's a couple in the Pennsylvania area I know of, just north of me, that do it. I don't, unfortunately, know any of their names. I probably could find their eBay usernames, mm -hmm. but your best bet is to look for restored saws on eBay and contact those sellers. They'll help you out. Well, you know, and you, you mentioned the whole steel wool thing. Um, if this is his dad's saws, what a great little project to just do on the side and research this stuff, learn how to do it, and actually put the TLC into it yourself. Um, so that when it's done, you got this thing on your wall in your shop, or I don't, I don't, did he even indicate that he wants to use them? It sounds like he really just kind of wants to be able to say, Hey, look, this is my dad's. Yeah, that's true. If he just wants to say it's, you know, doesn't need to be sharp and usable, then yeah. I clean it up yourself and, you know, sand the handle, apply some boil linseed oil to it, clean it up. You know, I think you will probably put more care into it than, than Bob Rosieski. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I sent Bob some that I thought were nice and clean and then he sent them back and he's like, yeah. Uh, do a better job next time. <laughs> you suck at this. <laughs> you really do. He's just a big quitter. <laughs> okay. Bob, I, think... I can see my face and these saws look horrible in it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm, yes. Well, anyway, so what's the next Okay, I think we actually did answer that time, so we can move on now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, email. We've got one from uh, Paul here. Now, here's the thing. I've got about four, and I, I trimmed them down a little bit, but these are all related to finishing an HVLP. And uh, thanks to Matt's excellent organizational skills, 
our scrap pile list of questions that come in, he, he managed to organize them even better than they usually are. And uh, now we can kind of uh, pick two or three questions on the same topic and try to nail them all at once and hopefully answer more people's questions that way. Hopefully. We'll see. Oh, yeah. We'll see how it goes. That's, we that's just I, was, more, I was amazed. That, back per episode. <laughs> yeah, I'll just give three crappy answers instead of one mediocre one. There you go. Okay. That was the whole idea. So sort of rapid fire-ish style here. I'm going to go through these. The first one is from Paul. He says, considering a spray system for, you know what? Here's the thing. Disclaimer, I'm not like an HVLP spray guru guy. Uh, I'm thinking as I'm going through this, as I answer these questions, I want to make sure people understand that there are better resources than Wood Talk for this. Uh, for instance, Jeff Jewett, what? <laughs> Homestead Finishing, uh, what is it? Homesteadfinishingproducts.com, I believe is his website. Uh, he's a wealth of information, has books on this stuff, uh, DVDs on this stuff, and sells the equipment too. So if you're really, really interested in HVLP, I really suggest getting in touch with Jeff. I've heard he answers emails personally, and you can get some really good quality uh, information. And now I'm going to give you some information that may not be as good. Uh, how's that for a little confidence builder? And suddenly Bob's going to start getting all of these questions. And <laughs> In other words, just bug him. Um, all right. So the first one's from Paul. He says, considering a spray system for an armoire, I'm getting ready to finish and don't really want to hand rub the whole thing. What are the pros and cons of both? Erlex looks nice, but pricey. Is that much better? Okay. Well, ultimately, I think your hand rubbed, wiped on sort of finishes overall are just going to be more approachable. There's no equipment needed. You buy the finish, maybe just get yourself a little plastic bowl and a a cotton rag and you're off to the races. And and it's a fairly easy finish to apply. And frankly, that's where I recommend everybody starts out. Even if you're doing large pieces of furniture, it's not that big of a deal. You could do it all by hand. Um, Of course, the the pros of an uh, HVLP system in spraying is things are going to go much faster, but you're also going to burn through a lot more finish and you make a lot of overspray. So it can be very messy. Uh, There's a little bit more into the technique and potentially the thinning of the material to get it to spray properly. So you have a, you have a whole new area of woodworking to learn when you start to play with spray finishes. It's just an extra thing to tack onto it. Most of us can fairly easily uh, understand and relate to rubbing on a finish. Um, It makes a lot of sense right out of the box, Um, but spraying does take a little bit more practice. Uh, Erlex looks nice, but it's a little pricey. Well, Erlex is kind of the, the bottom tier. So if Erlex is pricey, you ha- I mean, think about some of the other systems like Apollo and Fuji. There's some really good uh, spray turbine systems out there, and oh boy, can they get expensive. So Erlex is, if that's what you're considering expensive, that probably is, they do make good stuff, but understand that that's actually a bottom tier brand for the most part. Um, but they can, they do have some decent equipment that'll get the job done, especially for hobbyists and weekend woodworkers. Uh, Eric's question is next. I do 50%. I'm going to try to answer these faster. Shoot. Uh, I do 50% woodworking, 50% remodeling. I want a sprayer that'll spray both my furniture projects with clear stuff, but also spray paint for doors, trims, etc. Uh, is there a good option for those of us that like to do both types of projects and want a sprayer that can work for both? Uh, a couple things you could look into. There are some airless sprayers out there that uh, claim to be able to do clear finishes as well as uh, excelling at paint. So that may be something to look into. I don't have a lot of experience with those. As far as HVLP goes, you just need power. If you get a three-stage or greater turbine, you should be able to push through latex paint and uh, other types of paint if you want to. Um, I personally don't spray a lot of paint, so I don't have that much firsthand experience with it. But sometimes with a little bit of thinning, you should be able to get uh, the the spray to atomize properly, even if you are using paint. And of course, you get the right tip size to do that as well. You'll also be able to handle clear finishes. 
Uh, next question is from Glenn. He says, I'm looking to buy a spray gun, wondering what type of system to go with. I hear people talk about HVLP systems most often. Is this because they're cheaper than buying a large compressor and a spray gun, or are they better in some way? I already have a large air compressor, so would it be cheaper for me to buy just a gun? Uh, but if uh, HVLP gives me better results, I can I will consider spending extra money. Okay, just a quick clarification clarification for Glenn, most of what you're going to buy out there today is HVLP. So if you buy a gun to go with your compressor, it'll likely be an HVLP, uh, um, uh, what do they call it? Hold on. It's a conversion gun. I'm losing my own terminology here. So it's an HVLP gun, but they call it a conversion gun because essentially you're taking the high pressure from your compressor and dialing it down enough to create an HVLP system with this single gun. So you're right. If you've got a powerful compressor, you are probably better off just buying the gun and you'll get a decent HVLP spray out of it, uh, but you don't have to necessarily buy a full-scale turbine system. Um, Think of it as you need an air source, you need a gun. And if you get a conversion gun, you've already got the air source. If you want to go for a full kit that has everything, gun and the air source, that's what the turbine is. Um, But, you know, you'll get comparable quality. You get a nice, good quality gun. uh, You should be able to spray just as well as I can spray with my turbine. And the last one here is from Greg. I'm refinishing a beach table for my aunt and have to dye it to match her new chairs. It's a mix of medium brown and vintage cherry. I'm using general finish dye stains and have preconditioned the wood with Charles Neal's blotch control. Good choice. Since it's such a large surface, I figured spraying is the best. I only have a cobalt spray gun from Lowe's, so I'm not sure what PSI I should go with to spray the stuff and how far from the tabletop I should be in order to spray it. Thoughts? All right, this comes down to practice. I don't know the settings specifically for your gun. You have to just try it. And here's the good thing. General Finish's water-based dye stain is kind of just like colored water. So if you just put water in your gun and get a piece of plywood or a piece of cardboard and practice, you just want to minimize overspray. You're not spraying a film when you're spraying dye, so you don't have to worry too much about uh, the quality of the surface. It's very forgiving. Um, you don't really want to be any more than like a foot away from the surface when you spray, and you just want to minimize overspray. So play with your pressure settings, consult the, uh, the manual, which might have some general guidelines, and uh, use water for practice, and that should get you in the ballpark. Boy, I talked a lot. You know, the first time I sprayed dye, I used one of those like spray bottles from like the home center. Yeah, yeah. I've done that too. I that put works. colored water in it and I squeezed the little thing and I went around and sprayed it that way. <laughs> well, and especially if you're going to wipe it back. If you're going to wipe it back, it just doesn't matter. Get the stuff on the surface, wipe it back and you're done. But if you are looking to get a nice even coating, um, it gets a little bit trickier to do with a spray bottle. Uh, but you do have to kind of finesse the fan and make sure that the pressure is just right so you're not overblowing it and getting color all over the place at the same time. All right, I'm done. You're up, Are you Matt. sure? Uh, there, there's a few more in there if you I've want to got, go. I, I, I put my hair up in a bun and, and wrote some more. <laughs> I deleted a couple of them. Yeah, yeah. no, I know exactly <laughs> how that is. All right, sweet. Well, now we have that information. I'm actually going to dip my toe a little bit into the whole finishing thing because finishing scares me, but I'm going to do it just for you guys. Woohoo! All right, so this co- question came in from Colin, and he says, My shop is a single car garage that I can occasionally steal away from the clutches of my wife's Chevy, and it's not exactly weather tight. Even after a thorough cleaning, it only takes a day or two for the dirt, dust, leaves, and cobwebs to reappear en masse. Considering most training materials' emphasis is on the importance of cleanliness and finishing, I'm worrying that I'll ruin what has been an otherwise positive first venture. Now, what I should say also is Colin had written a little bit further ahead of this that he is trying his, his 
first time out on doing a restoration of a kind of an antique-ish type uh, piece. So he's gone through all the steps of breaking it down and, and sanding it and getting it all ready to go. So he says, well, I'm sure it's my, in my own best interest to take the time to track down the root cause and, and better protect the garage. The sun is coming out and I'm going stir crazy. In your experience, just how sensitive do you need to be to external conditions when it comes to selecting a finish? Would multiple thinner coats of something normally seen as a fast drying, like a shellac or a lacquer, improve my chances at a clean end product while giving an appropriate level of protection? Would Mark's wiping varnish or a water-based finish react fast enough to save me from dust bunnies while providing a stronger barrier against inevitable snack and drink spillage? How could, should, would wax play into the equation? Or is the best policy still one of prevention, either investing the time in fixing the garage or using more temporary measures like a furnace filter and box fan or a DIY tarp booth? I'm also wondering if I may be overcomplicating this into some kind of newbie OCD, but figured it couldn't hurt to ask. You know, I'm just going to throw this out there, not just for Colin, but for everybody else. If, if you have to throw that last part in there, I'm wondering if I'm overcomplicating things. <laughs> the answer is typically yes. <laughs> I see where you're going. <laughs> that, should be, that should be your big one right there. Now, the, one thing for sure with this question, and we had kind of talked about this, uh, I don't know, was it on, off air or just before we're going on this? I, I work out of the garage. In fact, this is Shannon with your, your uh, on the bench earlier on. All my finishing is done out in the garage. I'm not allowed to do any finishing in the house. I can do a little dye work, maybe some shellac if nobody's home, but that's about it. The rest of it has to be done outside. And so I am very familiar with the whole garage scenario. And just to set this picture, when it comes to my garage, it is not even close to being clean. I typically clean it with a uh, leaf blower. So that kind of gives you a picture of how dirty it is all times. What I've been doing lately, and I've been getting really great results with this, is doing the whole entire thing of taking the finish that I'm planning on using and typically thinning it out and putting multiple layers of this thinned out version on my projects. And I have been getting probably the best results I've ever gotten from doing it any other way. And the nice thing about this, of course, is the fact that it is going to dry just that much quicker before dust has an opportunity to settle on it and, of course, cause that nice texture-like feeling that I have become synonymous for with all my other projects. One other thing I might suggest is... You know, you, you mentioned something about maybe like a DIY tarp booth or something like that. There's that that's really not a bad idea. When I was at Wood Weekend with Wood 2013, Jim Heavey even talked about the fact that depending on the sizes of the component that he's finishing, he'll go so far as to do something really, really revolutionary, which is to take an appropriately sized cardboard box and put it right over the top of whatever it is he just got done finishing, even while he's using these thinned out coats, just again as a kind of a, another way to protect it from any potential dirt flying over the, all over the place. My own experience, I've even had it where while I'm finishing, I've got a nice you know, wet coat on there. I'm looking at it and thinking, all right, everything's covered. I got the brush strokes just the right way. And suddenly somebody comes home and the garage door starts to open. Normally I would panic, but to be quite honest with you, I haven't run into an issue yet. I'm knocking on wood. So hopefully that won't come back to bite me. <laughs> so, Really, my advice is use the finish that you're the most comfortable with. Uh, maybe since this is your really your first big adventure out there, you maybe are experimenting with a few of them. Uh, but again, I'm finding by doing these multiple thinned out coats, uh, it dries a lot faster and I, I can get a, a nicer 
finish without the fear of suddenly coming in and finding it populated by dust bunnies and all of that good stuff. Hmm. So that I think that gets to the main part of the issue. That whole thing with like you know should you use use wax or something like that. I've used wax once before and I don't think I used it the right way, but it, it turned out pretty good and the client seemed okay with it. And by client, I mean my wife. Uh-huh. So. Cool. You know, I think the big thing is just to accept that the dust bunnies are going to happen and do a scuff sand in between coats. And then you, you build up that nice finish over time so that your final top coat can be like the thinnest thin coat ever that flashes off and dries in like 30 minutes. No matter what I do, I'm going to end up with dust on the surface. And you just have to be prepared to hit it with a scotch Brite pad or 2000 grit sandpaper or something like that in between. Yeah, or d- some, definitely a uh, nice brown bag. Yeah, get get comfortable yeah. with finishing the finish because sometimes that's that's all there is there to save you from from a crappy finish. Just wait a couple of weeks, let it cure up, and then uh, do some last minute abrasion on the surface. That should help. One right. thing that I found, I don't know where he doesn't say where he is, but um, uh, actually found, that wasn't part of the the portion I cut out. He's in Ohio. Okay, so a lot of humidity there, which is always in the summer. You know, I can't open my garage door because it's it's just not conducive finishing because it's just so damn hot and humid. But I will actually, even though it's it's quite um, painful, I will close the garage door and turn on a heater. And it actually, it makes the finish dry faster, not so much because of the heat, but because of the dryness of the heater. The forced air of the heater actually causes things to dry much, much quicker. It's perfect now when it's like 60 degrees outside, I'll put the heater on. It gets the shop up to about 78 degrees. But man, I can dry an oil finish in like 12 hours instead of 24. It's very cool. Wait. Good deal. There's probably something wrong with that, but so far it's worked just fine. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to follow suit here and take a couple of questions rolled into one. But unlike Matt, I am too scared to leave my comfort zone. So I'm going to stick right in my comfort zone. We're going to talk about lumber. We've got a bunch of questions about guys who, for one way or another, have ended up with uh, a down tree or sawn up some logs or going to saw up some logs or are looking beyond the standard lumberyard kiln-dried stuff and wondering, how do I dry my own stuff? And what, what's the difference between buying kiln-dried and, and going with green? So um, really focusing on questions from David and Daniel here. And there's a couple of guys whose names I didn't write down. So sorry if you really wanted to hear your name on air. Um, first and foremost, when you are, the, the question comes up, if I'm going to mill this tree into planks, and maybe wood turning blocks and things like that. Um, I you definitely definitely must seal at least the ingrain of those boards. You can buy a fancy product like Anchor Seal, or you can just buy some latex paint. Um, you know, at, at the lumber yard, we have latex uh, aerosol cans, and you spray it on the end of the board, and that works just fine. You can even buy fancy lumber sealer and an aerosol can, which is really easy. Or you can buy the can of Anchor Seal, which is basically you know, wax that you paint on yourself. Uh, if you've got a lot of lumber, I don't recommend going the anchor seal route because it just takes a long time and the aerosol can works great. You do that to slow down the um, exchange of moisture out the ingrain, which, which is where that exchange of moisture happens the most rapidly. You are not sealing the boards. So despite names like anchor seal, you cannot seal a board. No matter what you do, unless maybe you encase it in plastic bury it in concrete and send it into outer space, you cannot seal the moisture into or out of a board. It's just going to slow down that exchange of moisture. And that's what we want to do because the faster that happens, the more you're going to get those checks and, and big long cracks on the end of the board. So that's the first thing. Definitely seal it. 
there's a couple questions about, well, should I just clamp up the boards to prevent them from cupping? I wouldn't clamp the board, but what you want to do is weight the stack. So you're going to stack your, your boards. You're going to sticker them by putting little pieces in between. Um, you know, you want airflow of, you want exchange of airflow throughout the entire stack. So you don't have to get real fancy with these. The, the professional lumber yards will use specific stickers. A lot of times they're shaped like an I-beam. Some of them are shaped like an I-beam with like, uh, um, almost like dado cuts along the length so that you, you end up with less sticker in contact with the board. Um, you could just use a piece of one by one by one hardwood will be fine. I recommend not using something like an oak because of the high tannins in it. It can cause staining, but, um, maple will work. We use actually Ipe at our yard, but that can get a little bit more expensive. Um, you want something that's just going to be non-reactive and as little a surface area as possible on the boards. Obviously, the less there is in contact with the stickers, the more airflow that can run through them. So you stack it and sticker it like that and then put something super heavy on top of it. Or what works really, really well is to get one of those band clamps. Um, you know, they have those ratcheting tie downs that you put in your pickup truck or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's uh, what is that stuff? Some sort of nylon cord with the big old ratchet mechanism on it. And you can ratchet the whole pack really, really tight. And that will actually hold it in check and it'll keep it from, from um, warping and not necessarily keep it from warping and cupping, but just keep it from being completely out of control. Um, the other thing is just the weight of the stack of lumber itself will help that. So for instance, if you walked in the air dry yard at, at, at the lumber yard where I work, you'll find that there's no banding on the packs at all. It's because there's 5,000 board feet stacked on top of it. Only the top maybe three layers have a band around it. We use steel banding at the lumber yard. Um, obviously, that's a little bit harder to come by for the average person. But only that top couple of layers is banded, and the rest of it are just held in check by the sheer weight of the lumber above it. We then take a piece of corrugated metal and put it on top, um, and then put just a couple of blocks of whatever just to weight that down so it doesn't blow away in the wind. Um, there's really no rhyme or reason as to why it's corrugated, uh, you know, other than just to capture some of the water and cause it to run off. Um, you could use plastic, you could use metal, whatever. You will probably expect that that top layer of boards might end up with a little bit of staining from water, might end up, that might end up warping. So grab your lowest quality boards and put them on top because inevitably moisture is going to hit there, snow, bugs, whatever are going to land there. Um, so plan on kind of sacrificing those top couple of boards, that top layer. And then, of course, set the entire stack up on blocks. Um, we have just regular old poplar, kiln-dried uh, two-by-two poplar that we set the entire stack up on. And everything in the yard sits on those two-by-two poplars. Um, it doesn't have to be some sort of super weather-resistant, you know, because it's going to sit in the mud eventually. Who cares? Those will those will fall apart over time. Um, the key is, is that strapping so that you you keep it in check and you, you don't just let it expand and contract and go crazy on its own. If you've ever freshly sawn a board and just kind of set it down all by itself, who knows where it's going to go? So you're trying to kind of encourage it to stay relatively flat. The other thing, if you have control over how you're sawing it and can do this, saw it thick. Um, if you if you find yourself needing eight quarter, saw it a heavy eight quarter. If all you're going to use is four quarter, go for five quarter. Yes, you might, you know, end up wasting more turning into sawdust in the planer. But if the board warps out of control, you're going to waste the entire board 
trying to joint it down to this half inch thickness is all you're left with. So aim for a little bit heavier. The thicker the stock is, the more resistance it has against cupping. You essentially have more beam strength across the board. Um, finally, the the advantages of buying wet versus kiln dried and vice versa. Obviously, if you're buying green lumber, it's going to be substantially cheaper. You know, at least a dollar, if not more, a board foot cheaper. Probably more a board foot cheaper. But you can't use it right away. The rule of thumb is one year of drying time per inch of thickness. And that varies from species to species. If you've got a really dense species, it can take longer. If you've got a really thick cut, um, you know, 12 quarter, 16 quarter stuff, you need more than three to four years to dry that. Um, That's really difficult to dry dry well, that is. So it takes a long, long time. You've got to have the space to stack and sticker it. And I can't emphasize this enough. You cannot be certain that it doesn't have bugs or that it won't become infested while it's drying. There are multiple insect blights going around the country right now. There's quarantine posts all over the place saying don't ship lumber between states because some states are affected with a blight and others aren't. Um, When you're buying kiln dried, generally... 90% of the time you're dealing with a lumber yard that has a heat treatment certification. And that means they get audited like once a week, sometimes as little as once a month, but usually once a week to make sure that their kiln schedules will kill off those bugs and those pests. Certain pests are more resistant than others and require a certain kiln schedule to kill it off. You can be pretty certain that the stuff you're buying that's kiln dried has been heat treated and is bug free. If it's, if it's, if it's green or even if it's air dried, you can't be certain that that will not air drying will not kill off bugs. In fact, it just gives them more time for the bugs to eat it. So I'm not saying avoid it entirely, but you have to be vigilant. Look for the wormholes in the board and specifically look for wormholes and the little piles of sawdust next to those wormholes. Those little piles of sawdust mean there's a bugger in there actively boring and kicking up the sawdust out the back. If you see that, you got to get it heat treated. That's the only way to kill it. You definitely do not want to bring that stuff into your shop, especially if your shop is inside a wooden building because <laughs> who knows what those little buggers are going to do to your shop. You could then build the furniture and put it in your house or your client's house, and then they call you in a year from now saying, how come I suddenly have an infestation in my house? And you um, say you should try cleaning more. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that, that's people. one excuse. <laughs> but you will be shocked at how long these guys can hang on. Um, You may think you've killed that bug, but man, they can go into hibernation and they'll be there four years from now. Um, It's just the only way you can be certain is proper kiln drying. So that being said, the advantages of air dried or green is obviously it's a lot easier to work. Um, It's much, much softer, but it's not as stable. Kiln dried lumber is like since it's Cinco de Mayo, it's like taking a tortilla and sticking it in the oven. It becomes very crisp and, and brittle. And when you try to bend it, it snaps in half. That's kiln-dried stuff. Now, that's, that's a bit a bit of an extreme metaphor that, that's <laughs> taking kiln-drying too far. But you imagine a fresh tortilla. It's really pliable and bends and everything, and it's nice and moist. It will absorb and dump moisture a lot faster than kiln-dried, where essentially you've baked the lumber and the cell walls have become hardened. And that will not absorb moisture as readily. It will still absorb it, but not as fast. So kiln-dried obviously stays more stable. When the humidity spikes, it just kind of doesn't, unless the humidity stays there for a long time, the kiln-dried lumber doesn't is not affected by it, whereas air-dried lumber will move, move around a lot faster than the kiln-dried stuff. 
Now, in general, a uh, tortilla example, can you use a stamp collection uh, example in this situation? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I heard um, that's the best if, metaphor. <laughs> if, if, you bake, <laughs> if you bake a stamp collection, uh-huh. the pages will become brown and really brittle and hard and uh-huh. it will crumble away. If you leave your stamp collection in a recently licked state, it will stay more pliable. The colors will stay better. I, I'm, I'm losing it here. I, yes, I don't know. Yes, <laughs> uh, I think we got it. I'm just making it up now. But <laughs> so I, I don't want to, I mean, obviously I, I sell kiln dried lumber, um, but I love air dried stuff. But generally when I'm using air dried lumber, it's on my lathe. It's something that I'm going to turn really, really quickly. Um, and even then sometimes set aside in a paper bag to dry appropriately. It's also something I'm looking very closely at for bugs. And they're chopped up into smaller pieces, or it's when I've made Windsor chairs before. And as you're, you know, draw knifing this stuff down, you'll see those holes, you know, the the powder post holes that show up in, in the oak or whatever. But even then, we put it in in the, the the bending form and stick it in a kiln for it, so it's set, so you don't get a lot of spring back when you pull out of the form. Whether or not that kiln is enough of a heat treatment, um, it's still, it's something you got to be very aware of when you're working with this stuff. So the only real guarantee you can have on the pest thing is by buying kiln-dried lumber. So okay, that's all I have to say about that. That was about 12 questions rolled into one. So I hope hope everybody got what they were looking for. <laughs> very good. All right. Well, all my hard to- work and you guys wipe it out in one f- failed there's plenty more there's more Matt plenty more to go they came in today (laughs) thank you everybody for all the questions you have given us enough material to basically keep doing weekly shows for like seven years there's there's several years worth of questions in there for sure Uh, I feel bad we can't get to them all but we'll do our best we're working on it yeah that we will Um, hey you know what you can actually help support the show if you wanted to not by sending in emails that's one that actually is one way uh, you know, we That's don't necessarily true. need financial support. We, we like, you know, we got a couple uh, of emails recently from uh, Robert specifically showing us he's wearing the Wood Talk shirt as he's traveling around and he's sending us pictures <laughs> where, yes. where he's at with his shirt on, which is pretty awesome. So we always appreciate the word of mouth and uh, telling other people, other woodworkers, you know, about the show that, that you think might like it. Maybe they got a little sense of humor. They don't take themselves or themselves or their woodworking too seriously. They might enjoy this show. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you're a little too serious. I don't know. Maybe we're not, we're not everybody's cup of tea. We can recommend uh, other shows. But if you want to support us a little bit more directly, you can do that with a a donation one time or recurring. Just go to woodtalkshow.com and look in the side column and you'll see some links for those uh, recurring donations. And that always helps out a lot. You can also buy that Wood Talk t-shirt that I just mentioned. Go uh, to uh, twwstore.com and you'll find um, in the apparel section, I believe there's Wood Talk t-shirts and couple other things there too. Uh, we still have the uh, Woodworkers Fighting Cancer t-shirts available if you're interested in that and part of your purchase there goes to charity. Uh, you could also leave us an iTunes review. Just go into iTunes, look us up. We're a Wood Talk Show and click on ratings and reviews. Leave us a five-star, hopefully, review just like NBVA user and Lanai Woodworker had uh, who had this to say. And that's, that's a Hawaiian word, isn't it? Lanai? Lanai. I'm going to assume so. Lanai. Okay, good deal. And, I was uh, born there. That's why I'm asking you. That makes me qualified because <laughs> um, I lived there 37 years ago. Um, I don't know if it's a, a a guy or a girl, but they say, I just recently got into woodworking and have downloaded all the videos from Matt, Mark, and Shannon. I'm working my way through all the old Wood Talk episodes right now, but I have to say 
that more than anyone else, you three have inspired me and taught me so much. Uh, I feel quite certain that, okay, it must, uh, well, I can't say it must be a guy, but in all likelihood it's a guy. He says, my wife blames the three of you for uh, the corner of my living room currently housing my wood and my back deck being turned into a modular wood shop. Live in Hawaii and don't have a garage, so I'm having to get creative with my wood shop. Uh, But once I'm done with the Lanai Woodworks, I will send you pictures. That sounds great. And Lanai means a porch, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, my... Plays my in-laws his- are always out on their land eye, but that's in that's in Florida. So I think maybe they need to move. Well, there you go. Uh, he says if the Wood, Wood Talk Trio ever fancies a vacation to Hawaii, hello. <laughs> he's paying? Awesome. Right he's going to love us even more. He says I'd, want us? <clears throat> I'd be more than happy to assist in discount lodging. I'm in the Navy. I have a few connections for some killer koa. Keep up the great work. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All that good stuff. Well, thank you so much. Great review. We appreciate that. Awesome. Thank you. All right. And Matt, how about you give them the contact info? I'll give you a little sweet background music here, and uh, you can let them know how to get in touch with us. All right, folks. Hey, do you have a comment or question or maybe a topic suggestion? We have several different ways to contact us, and it's not just by Borough Mail. You can leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. I had every plans to read that in Spanish, but that's how bad my <laughs> college Spanish is. You can email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or you can leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or say previous episodes, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com. So awesome. I, I, I congratulate you on being being able to do that entire thing with a straight face. <laughs> well, actually, it's, uh, I, I pre-recorded that. You just haven't realized I'm patching that in right now. Okay. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, go ahead. What, what's that, Shannon? I was just going to say, I'm getting emails from Matt while we're recording. So he's, <laughs> he's obviously doing something else. <laughs> yeah, he's very busy. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll catch you next time. See ya. Bye. Adios, amigos. Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.